I want to welcome all of you to the Doctrinal Essentials class. Thanks for coming. This class will probably be going on for the next nine or ten weeks, and so we'll be studying through some things together. But before we get started, let's pray. Oh, Father, we look to you again as we, as we do every morning. Lord, we want to acknowledge our dependence on you. We need you. Holy Spirit, open our ears. Open our eyes, Lord, to see your glory, to behold the wonders of your glory in your word, to have increased understanding that gives way to increased believing, increased obedience, increased joy. So satisfy our hearts, Lord, this morning and help us to experience and feel in our bones the value of your word to to be convinced that it's worthwhile to open and to think deeply about biblical truth. Um, so, Lord, cause this to be a time that brings you glory and a, times that, a time that builds us up and edifies our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome. Uh, this, this is going to be a study... In one sense, it's a systematic theology class. It's a class that's going to study biblical doctrines in a topical way, theme by theme. And so before we're done, we'll study through the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, obviously, this won't, won't be comprehensive. Some, you know, some weeks, we'll only have one week to talk about some massive topic. So it'll just be to hit salient issues as much as we can. So we'll spend a couple of weeks on the doctrine of Scripture, uh, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, doctrine of the return of Jesus. And, uh, and hopefully, once, once we're done, we'll have, the goal is that we would have a better grasp of biblical truth. And, and to the end, that we would be more convinced of the beauty of God, the power of God, the sustaining grace of God, the promises of God, the truthfulness of God. So that would be our, our hope and desire, really at the end of any School of the Word class. Our desire is not just to accumulate knowledge so that we can be really, really smart people, but that we would be godly people. And we become godly people by, uh, Paul says, by beholding the Lord. And so we want to behold him as we look at salvation, as we look at the doctrine of theology proper, of, of God himself and his attributes and the Trinity and all these wonderful things, and, and I, I pray, my prayer has been that this would be a time that would edify us. God's Word is God revealing Himself, and so one author said that the Bible is God preaching God. It is God preaching on the topic of Himself, and so as God reveals Himself, He reveals Himself so that we might worship and reverence and honor Him. God, God has wired faith in a way, though, that faith is strengthened as we receive biblical truth. That's what it means when Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we're going to be studying these various doctrines in, in the hope of strengthening our faith, of becoming more informed of, of who God is and informed of what his truth is. So we're going to spend some time this morning really kind of getting an orientation to doctrinal study, uh, systematic theology, to try to set it up a little bit and distinguish different kinds of biblical disciplines from each other. Uh, so I, I think that 
in the same way that we can work out, we can do physical things, and, and different kinds of workouts contribute different things to our health. I think the same way, there can be different biblical disciplines that we don't kind of isolate one and say, this is the only one I need. There, God comes to us in his word in all kinds of various and wonderful ways. And we need, as we embrace them all, it brings different nutrients into our lives. So, so let's talk about what distinguishes doctrinal study from other approaches. And we'll run through these, these briefly. The first that I think is really necessary for us if we want to learn God's word, if we want to become which is what School of the Word is all about. We want to become a people of the book. It was said of John Bunyan that if you cut him anywhere, he bled scripture. We want to be that kind of people. Jerome, the ancient church father, said, the one who was well grounded in the testimonies of scripture is the bulwark of the church. And so we want to be strong in faith, which means we need to be strong in God's word. We want to pursue proficiency in scripture mastery of scripture not that we'll ever get there we won't but we pursue it we don't kind of apathetically say hey i'll never get all this stuff no we dive into it with all of our might all of our mind and strength to know god and his word and i think where that begins is scripture memory i think it would be remiss to move past that we as the psalmist said in psalm 119 11, i have hidden your word in my heart that i might not sin against you and I, probably the case for many of us, our testimony is that once we became Christians, suddenly we had this appetite for God's word. And we didn't want to just read it. We wanted to tuck it away in our memory bank. We wanted to know it. We wanted to have ready access to God's word so that when you're battling with the kind of thoughts that we were talking about last Sunday morning, you, you don't have to wait till you get home and you can look in your concordance. You've got verses to do battle with now. You've got bullets in the in the gun that you can battle with. And so we need God's word to be hidden in our hearts. How many of you have had, have spent some energy or maybe are currently even continuing to spend energy memorizing biblical verses, passages? Great, raise them up high, let's see. All right, great, that's good. So let's, let's test this out, ready? I'm going to just start a verse and we'll see if you can just jump in. Now we might have different versions which might complicate things. But hopefully there's at least enough sameness that we can continue through. And then we'll see if some people in here might even know the reference. Ready? Trust in the Lord with all... Oh, that is sweet. Proverbs 3, 5. Great. Okay. The thief comes not but to... But I have come. Okay, that was a little messier, but it was in there. <laughs> All right. Anybody know where that is? John 10, 10. I am the... Good. Where is that? That's a tougher one. All right, John 14, 6. Okay, I can do... Excellent. Where are the, where's that? Great. All right. There's some good work going on in the scripture memory department. The point is, as we move into systematic theology, doctrinal study, don't leave that behind. By all means, memorize Psalm 1. 
memorize Romans 8 or big chunks of it. Uh, Continue to commit God's word to memory so that we can breathe the air of scripture throughout the day. One of the things that I used to do when I first started wanting to memorize scripture in order to keep things going was anytime I saw a number, uh, speed limit sign, exit number 232, I would just try to run through and see, can I manipulate those numbers to come up with a memory verse? And so there are just all around us, there are clocks, there's, there are numbers on the outside of the rooms here and just start thinking and it keeps our memories sharp and focused and keeping God's word in us. So continue to pursue that. Continue to, to ask God and to study in a way that we're saying, Lord, we want to know your word. We want to know it. Should God forbid we ever live in a country where our Bibles are taken from us, we want to be able to say, you, you can't take the Bible out of my mind and my heart. And I've been meditating on God's words. I'm ready for this day because I've been committing God's word into my heart. The, the second category that's really important would be expositional study. I think that this is the sort of root of the tree. This is the queen mother of all true biblical knowledge. Uh, The danger of systematic theology, of systematic study, is that it can be easy to just use the Bible as a grab bag, just to go and grab a text, rip it out of its context, and grab another text and say, these two texts are saying the same thing because the words are the same in those two passages. And we end up with really fuzzy, sloppy doctrinal knowledge. Doctrinal knowledge, if we're going to have a good systematic theology, we need to study God's word in its own context. God is the one. In this sense, when we do expositional study, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. We are following God's own train of thought. In God's train of thought, as inspired in the text of Scripture, Romans 12 came after Romans 11 for a reason. Romans 11 came after Romans 10 for a reason. And so if we want to start piecing the big picture together, first we have to get into those texts and feel what is this passage saying? What's the whole chapter saying? How does this verse, how is it conditioned by what comes before it and what comes after it? And this kind of study, expositional, verse by verse, chapter by chapter study, involves opening your Bible to Romans chapter 1, starting there, opening to Galatians chapter 1, and just moving through with the tools of of biblical interpretation. Who is the author? Who is the audience? What is this verse saying, right? And proceeding through, what's the grammar? Are there the kinds of things that we talked about when we had the How to Study the Bible series? Using that and moving on through it, that's what expositional study uh, brings. And that's kind of what that approach is. Now, that sort of study is going to yield uh, a better sense of the flow of, of arguments, the flow of narratives in the Bible. So we're getting big picture things. We might have had Mark chapter 2 verse something memorized, but as we study Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, and then 3, and then 4, what we're getting is in that particular gospel, you're starting to pick up on bigger themes. You're zooming out. You're picking up on the fact that Mark seems to be preoccupied with the kingship of Jesus. As Jesus comes right out of chapter 1, Guns blazing, large and in charge, authority over demonic spirits. He's, he's, he's commanding the winds and the waves and they're ceasing. There's, there are these bigger themes that we're picking up on. Expositional study is going to give us those kinds of, of things. Expositional study is going to help us see this gathering tsunami wave that is the book of Hebrews. 
so that when that wave crashes down, we feel the superiority of the new covenant over what came before it. We feel the supremacy of Jesus, the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We feel that as we study it expositionally. And so those themes start rolling over. All right, and then, which is where this study is going to be, then there's, there's doctrinal study, there's systematic theology. This is another way that we become a people of the word is by studying what the whole Bible says. We make an effort to piece together what the entire Bible says on a given topic. What, 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 does, what does Paul's material say about the nature and character of God? What does Moses' material say about the nature? What do the Psalms say about the nature? And, and we start to pan out even further and see how these pieces all fit together and form a mosaic of the doctrine of God, a mosaic of the doctrine of Scripture, etc. Wayne Grudem says this, Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? This definition indicates that systematic theology involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages in the Bible on various topics and then summarizing their teachings clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. Now this is, it's going to get tricky uh, because as we read our Bibles, there are going to be times where we read a certain verse or a certain passage of Scripture and it doesn't seem to fit with other things that we read in the Bible. Maybe it even has the same word as another passage and seems to almost flatly contradict what that other passage is doing. It's systematic theology says, systematic theology believes, the whole discipline of systematic theology moves forth on the premise that God is not contradicting himself, that we don't worship a God who is confused, who believed one thing 2,000 years before Jesus came through those writings, and then was saying something completely different in 60 AD, roughly, when Ephesians was written. No, God is the, it's the same God who's author of it all, and he's not confused, and he's truthful, and he's not trying to confuse us, and therefore there are, a way, there are ways to harmonize these passages. There are ways to harmonize these passages without doing violence to the passages. If we understand these passages correctly, they actually fit. So, but that can be a bit of a challenge from time to time. I'll give you a classic example. The question, how are we justified before God? Four verses. Romans 3.28. For we hold to notice that in each of these verses, the word justified is used. Right? You might say from a, a surface reading, all these verses are about justification because they all mention justification. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if we would summarize that, it would be a faith alone verse, right? Faith alone is the, the heart of Romans 3.28. James 2.24 you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the first verse seemed to be saying faith alone. Second verse on a surface reading seems to be saying not faith alone, also works are involved in justification. You can see, right? The gears are turning. Galatians 2.21. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, summarize that. No one will be justified by law-keeping. But then you have Romans 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So Galatians 2.21 seems to be saying no one's justified by law-keeping. 2.13 of Romans, on a surface reading, seems to be saying law-keepers are justified. So which one is it? Now you can see that the challenge of doing systematic theology is that some of these verses might seem to be saying almost opposite things. How do we harmonize these verses? You might say, well, it's both of them. We're justified by law, obviously, because there are passages that say it. So we must believe that we're justified by works, by law-keeping, and also we're justified by faith. It's sort of like uh, if you're going to go, if you're going to uh, build a bicycle, you have to have wheels. And if you're going to build a bicycle, you have to have a chain. It's not either or. It's that you have to have the chain and you have to have the wheels. It's not just the wheels or just the chain. It's both. But no. These verses are mutual, they're excluding one another. These verses, one of these sets of verses is saying, apart from works of the law, and then you have Romans eleven six 6 that gets in the mix here, and it says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So, uh, to come to a conclusion of what these verses are saying, we have to do expositional. We have to get into the context themselves read what verses precede, what verses come after, and then we can pan back out and try to piece them together in systematic theology, in a doctrinal study. Now, I'm not, for those of you who don't know how that resolves, I'm not going to resolve it because we're going to do that class a few weeks from now. That's called a cliffhanger, and it's so that you'll come back. Uh, but for those of you who do know how to resolve those passages, I can tell you why you know how to resolve those passages. Because you've gone into them, you've read them in their context, and then you've done systematic theology. You have thought systematically about the Bible. You've come out with the conclusion. You know, hey, Lord, I know you're not confusing me. I know these verses are not really contradicting each other, and so I'm going into the passages to dive deeper into what you may be saying. All right, so that's something of the what, distinguishing different kinds of biblical disciplines. So why study doctrine? The first reason... Uh, for us to talk about would be God wants us to know him and he wants us to know what he is calling us to as his people. God makes it very clear that he wants his people to know him, not to be uh, vague about him or have ambiguous sense of who God is, but to firmly know the Lord. Matter of fact, he says in, in Jeremiah, let, you know, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, but let him who boasts boast in this. Scripture memory people, what is it? That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. It's in the notes. Oh, okay, there it is. Y'all didn't turn me on to that fact, you know? It's Linda who was the honest one here. Um, one, one of the foundations I think of, of feeling like this is valuable is that God never wastes a word. Anything that exists in the Bible, anything that is taught by God, is by its mere existence in the Bible worth knowing. Here's what, here's what that can mean. is because I think that what we end up doing sometimes is pragmatizing our faith. It's like, you know what? Just talk to me about where the rubber meets the road. 
can we just get to where I'm living right now? Can we not talk about this abstract theology, attributes of God, eternality, omniscience, omnipotence? Just, okay, wh- how does that affect me in my workaday world, right? I'm in conflict with this person. Can we get to that real quick? Well, no, God says a whole lot about his nature. He says a whole lot about his capacities. And he says those things for very practical rubber-meets-the-road kinds of reasons. But before we get there, we have to know the attributes. We have to know the things that he has said about himself. And God never wastes a word. So if there are reams of biblical verses that say, I am a sovereign God. I am a God who's providential over every action in this creation. There's not a maverick molecule running around that's not at my beck and call. It's worth knowing that. There's a reason for us as Christians to know those truths. They ground our faith. They ground our understanding of who God is. And so if there are passages that talk about the the doctrine of God's foreknowledge, that is therefore not something we can just shrug off and say, hey, I'll leave that for the theologians and the scholar people. No, God has included that in his word to his people, his simple people, you and me. And he wants us to know this, and he has reasons for it. Even if we don't see the reasons for it, we should pursue this. And one of the other things that I think goes along with this is that our actions are driven by our beliefs. Creeds drive deeds. If I believe certain things about God, that is going to manifest itself in my relationships, in my worship, in my prayer, to God, it's going to touch everything in my life. There's a kind of permeation that goes on when, when a conviction settles in our hearts, that conviction is going to find a vent. And so we want the expressions of our lives, the words of our mouth, the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing in his sight. What that means is, God, when you tell me in this passage of scripture that this is what you are, I'm going to believe it with all my heart and I'm going to study it because you're worth knowing and you want me to know you, and this is going to have an effect on my life. Second reason why we should study doctrine is studying biblical doctrine benefits our lives, and there are a couple of subheadings under this. One, it protects us from wrong ideas. As you study biblical doctrine, as I study biblical doctrine, what we might not realize is going on is we are immunizing ourselves to error. Because God's word is truth. And he sanctifies his people by the truth. And he protects his people with the truth. And he helps us to fight against error with the truth. And therefore, this brings immediate benefit into our lives by protecting us from error. Paul writes to Timothy, as I urged you, this now note, this is Paul's letter to a young pastor. This is Paul's son in the faith. And in this pastoral letter, in this letter to Timothy, and he's saying, he's telling Timothy how to lead the church, how to love and shepherd the church. Um, And right here at the beginning of the letter, he puts front and center the importance of truth combating error. So young pastor, here's his words to a young pastor. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Interesting way to start a pastoral epistle. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And Paul goes on later in the same book 
to say, keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine or on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, by keeping a close watch on yourself and by keeping a close watch on your doctrine, on your teaching, you will both save yourself and your hearers. There are salvation overtones in our beliefs. Our beliefs can lead us astray into error. Paul talks about the danger of being led astray, away from simple devotion, purity of devotion to Christ. And so Paul, Paul begins his letter to Timothy by saying, right out of the gate, Timothy, you've got to get to work. Get to work teaching the church out of error, teaching the church into a state of protection and safety from error. And so far as you can, work in the Bible. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. Do your best to present yourself to God, a workman, a diligent workman that doesn't need to be ashamed but rightly divides the word of truth. The book of Galatians is another testimony to the fact that our beliefs lead to actions. Our theology matters. Paul has written Galatians to adjust their theology. It is written to say, I'm astonished by how you've turned away from the, the, the very heart of the gospel. This is not just some little tiny subset idea of theology. This is the main heading of theology is the gospel, and you've quickly deserted the graciousness of God in saving you by faith alone, and you've turned into this law-keeping bit. So you began by the Spirit, now you're trying to perfect yourselves by the flesh. And Paul says, foul, you've gone out of bounds. Come back to the teaching of Scripture. Come back to the simplicity and the beauty and purity of the gospel. And so he's adjusting their doctrine, really, he's adjusting their doctrine of justification throughout the letter. Read it. He's adjusting their doctrine of sanctification to to prevent them from sliding into the errors that they seem to be sliding into. So this is going to protect us from error as we engage it. Second, it's going to help us grow as Christians. God's word is a means of our growth and our transformation. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed, as another good one to memorize, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for. Here's the list of things that God's word gets done. Profitable for teaching us, reproving, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. All of the Bible is breathed out by God. It is all inspired. It is all edifying when we study it. Even the genealogy passages, even the Levitical laws, and all of that, it has the power to edify the hearts of believers to protect us from error and to grow us as Christians. So when I study the doctrine of assurance and I look at passage after passage after passage, I'm coming, I'm, I'm wrestling with questions. What is the state of my justification, my acceptance before God? What is the nature of my salvation? Is it fragile? It, it, how long does my justification last? Does it last only as long as my obedience? Right? And so as I wrestle with these texts on justification, what's happening is not I'm just kind of learning more abstract theories about who God is. I'm settling my soul in the soil of truth 
so that when the winds of doubt and unbelief and self-condemnation blow against me, I'm ready for that by God's grace because my roots have gone deep into the truth of justification by faith. So studying things like the doctrine of assurance may not on the front end seem all that practical, but they are, by all means, they are, or else God wouldn't, wouldn't include it in his word. This allows us to, to say in our hearts, Lord, I'm banking my life on the verdict of justification that you're not going to change that verdict. I'm staking my life on that Martin Luther said that we should have such a conviction of the promises of God that we could stake our life on it a thousand times. And that's what a study of a biblical truth is going to do. In other words, it's not shelf stock for our brains. Study of theology, the study of doctrine is heat for worship. It's fuel for worship. It's motivation for obedience, for love, for the, the faith that works itself out in love. So the equipping of our faith, growing in our ability to comprehend God's truth is going to lead to works of love. Faith is meant to find a vent through works of love. So it touches everything. Wayne Grudem writes, the more we know about God, about his word, about his relationships to the world and mankind, the better we will trust him. Mm the more fully we will praise him and the more readily we will obey him. Studying systematic theology rightly will make us more mature Christians. If it does not do this, we are not studying it in the way God intends. Now, I like his ending there because it implies that there's a way to study theology. There's an attitude in which to study theology that's going to help us grow. The study of theology for its own sake is not necessarily going to bring benefit into our lives. It could puff us up. We need to be careful about the attitude and the way in which we approach the study of God's word. So we'll finish out by talking about how should we study theology. And first, and this is where it must begin, we study theology, we study doctrine with prayer. We study prayerfully. Psalm 119, verse 18. This is what I think we we could say this every time we open our Bibles and grab our cup of coffee in the morning. We pray before God. Lord, I'm not just reading these verses. Lord, pray this. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We need the help of the Holy Spirit as we read our Bibles. We don't read as independent self-sufficient Christian people. We read as dependent, lovers of truth, lovers of God, prayerfully asking God to open our, our eyes and our minds. We study prayerfully in dependence on him, asking him, sanctify me in your truth. Lead me in your truth. Your word is truth. Do that as I read these verses. Related to that, we study theology with humility. So if I'm studying God's word and it seems to be making me feel superior to others or makes me always seem eager to correct other people's theology, all right, I've done, done all this, um, then I have drifted. I have drifted into studying theology, ironically, into studying God's word to build my own ego. It's really... The irony is I'm reading verses about God and it's all about me. 
I'm going to win this battle later this week because I'm reading these verses and you're going down, right? And, and that's not the way we should read the Bible. We should read the Bible humbly, listening to God. I, I love this verse, Isaiah 66, 2. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. This is the one to whom I will look. That is not, not simply that God looks. He looks at all of us. This is the one to whom I will look with particular blessing, with an inclination to bless. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. To study God's word with humility. We never master the Bible. Some of you have been reading the Bible for decades. Some of you have read the Bible once a year for decades, maybe two, three, four, five times a year for decades and decades, and we're still miles away from being able to just say, I got it. I got this thing. I know it backwards and forwards. You you wouldn't believe how many times I've read this book. We will never be masters of this. We pursue mastery so that we might be mastered by God's word, so that we might know him and stand in awe of him and worship him. And so that's what we do. As we, as we study, we should always listen. I know I've read this passage. I've been taught on this effectively, but I'm listening, Lord. Teach me. I want to listen as though I've never heard this before. Teach me afresh on the beauty of this particular doctrine that I'm thinking about. Arrogance says, I got this, I know this, but humility is always listening as we read God's word, saying, teach me, Lord. We read with reason. 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. God is not against the use of our brains as we study theology. He gave us our brains, and I suspect that he's happy when we use them. He's given us our... We don't need to resist or think that that's necessarily knowledge that puffs up because I'm using my brain. No, use your brain. God gave you a brain. Use your brain. God has made that word a noun, and it doesn't have some kind of spiritual non-nounness. It is a noun when you read it. That is a verb. The word for, it's, 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 it, all these things, they have built-in relationships that we're supposed to analyze them. If, if a word doesn't, doesn't have the capability of being defined a certain way, we shouldn't just kind of spiritualize it and do it anyway. No, we, we do study with integrity, and we do study with our brains connected. We're not to interpret the Bible using secret codes. There are logical relationships between phrases and sentences, and God has given us an ability to deduce, to draw out implications from passages of Scripture. I had a man come here about maybe four or five months ago. He came, he was, he, he's only come for one Sunday, and it was an interesting Sunday because uh, he came forward to the prophecy mic, and uh, I saw him talking to Pastor Peter, and then I saw Pastor Peter point at me. Uh, and, and so the, the young man, maybe early 20s, 2020 maybe, uh, came over, and he said, I heard that you're speaking this morning. And, uh, and I said, yeah. And he said, I, I wanted to ask you if, if you would step aside and let me preach the message this morning. And uh, I said, that's an interesting request. I've never got that before. Uh, that's, that's not, we can't do that. That's, it's not going to happen. And so he's trying to prevail upon that and trying to get a way to make that happen. I really feel like the Holy Spirit's told me to speak. And so I'm like, I, I feel the same way. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so um, I said, look, I, I'd be happy to talk afterwards about what it is that you feel is so burning in your heart. 
Um, and so when the meeting was over, there he was. He was waiting and uh, walked over and began to talk to him. And he opens to the book of Revelation. And uh, I don't remember what chapter, but he turns to this particular chapter and he says, uh, he says, this verse is about me. I said, well, yeah, the, I mean, all these verses are about God's people. So, yeah, it's about me too. And he said, no, I mean specifically about me. And he used various letters in the words surrounding to spell his name. Um, and, I, you know, I said, I, that's not the way that I read the Bible. I don't, I don't kind of put together codes and find my name in verses and stuff. Uh, the third letter of your name isn't even in the Greek alphabet, and this wasn't written in English. So there's a problem on many fronts. Um, and he said, he said, you know, here's the problem with you. You use, and he tapped me on the forehead. He said, you're using this. And he said, and I'm using my spirit. And I said, I, I believe that God wants us to use this when we read his word. It's not like when I attach this, I'm detaching my spirit. No, I read with my spirit. I read with my mind. I read as a whole man that God has put together to understand his word, to grow in the knowledge and grace of God. And so, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.7, he breaks down that, that kind of unnecessary division. He says, think over what I say. Think over what I say. Now, notice the word for. For, that as you're thinking, for, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And Paul is not saying, very clearly, Paul is not saying, Timothy, here's what I need you to do. Don't think. Just kind of relax spiritually, and I'm just going to cause statements and propositions and truths to just begin to flow into your mind absent of you. You're just kind of in, in reclining mode. No, Paul says, think and the Lord will give you understanding. He says that to Timothy. I think that's what we're supposed to do as we read the Bible. We're supposed to read it thinking. Uh, God has given these relationships between words and phrases and context, and we should observe them and move forward interpreting Scripture with them. And I think this is the last, no, two more points. With the help of others. No one is to study God's word in isolation for others, in isolation from others. Uh, We make mistakes in our interpretation of God's word, and we are served by others who have read this passage. We're served by previous generations who have studied these passages, who have written, teachers who have written to help us, scholars who have written to help us. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Note the teaching language that's here. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So pastors, teachers are supposed to teach and preach so that believers might not be tossed around by bad theology, by wrong interpretations of Scripture. We need teachers. Teachers help us. So God's Word doesn't give us the impression that we're supposed to say to teachers or to teachers of the past, that we're supposed to say, as it were, give me the the Bible, just hand me the Bible, close your mouth, slowly back 
away. No, we're, there's not that kind of cautiousness. We're, we receive God's word. We receive teaching from previous generations. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We've learned so much from the past. And so we don't want to be, as C.S. Lewis said, chronological snobbery, as though we're the first people coming in with a clean slate. Okay, don't say anything because you might distort something. And so I'm just going to do this. Just me, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. No, actually, the Bible says not to do that. The Bible, God is the one who said, I'm going to give you teachers. I'm going to give you this other people to help you understand. So that's why it's not unbiblical to read books, other books that teach us how to read our Bibles better. Because what we're doing as we read other books is we're embracing Ephesians 4.11, the function of teachers to help us understand the Bible. And, and finally, we, we study theology with rejoicing and praise. I think I'd say that that's what I most want for our study. Um, for us to study the doctrine of God and the Trinity and the depravity of man and election and God's grace in saving us and justification and glorification and the return of Jesus in a way that our hearts are warmed, in a way that we want to sing. We want to proclaim this. We want to run out of this room, go downstairs, and crank up the music so we can rejoice in this awesome God that we've been studying together. Psalm 119, 162 says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. You read the Apostle Paul, and there are these moments where he just explodes into doxology. He's talking about this or that pastoral issue, pastoral matter, whatever it is, and then he just bursts. He can't contain it anymore. And so after 10 chapters, 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he's laid out this glorious panoramic display of the grace of God and saving a people for himself. And then Paul just breaks out in song. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So I I believe that studying, not only memorizing verses, not only studying expositionally, but studying doctrine, studying theology can lead to worship. Uh, our Theoform group of guys have been get together for a few years now, and we've been reading through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, section by section. And so many times when we're reading that out loud, you can just hear moans of delight. And we're reading a systematic theology textbook that's two and a half inches thick, and we're just delighting in God. Oh, Lord, how amazing your creation, reading through the doctrine of creation, how amazing your work in the covenant of grace from days of old all the way up until the present time. And so it's delightful. It's a thing that that leads us and incites worship. I think uh, to close with this, that really what creeds are, creeds are systematic theology either done well or done poorly. And so if, matter of fact, at the end of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, if you have that, he includes some of the most important creeds of, the Christian, of Christian history. And we read through those out loud, and oh, it is, it is systematic theology done in a way that is drawing 
just hundreds of biblical passages in. I mean, you read through any of these creedal statements, and it's just loaded with theology, loaded with Bible. I'm going to read a couple to you in just a second to show you how this is systematic theology done well. Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm a big fan of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to this on repentance, on biblical repentance. And those who have read the Bible a lot, you're going to hear the kind of themes of Scripture resonating through here. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin, as our repentance isn't the reason why sins have been satisfied, okay? so even though that's, that's not the case, or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet... It is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. It's thoroughly biblical, right? I love this. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. And then this, on the coming of Christ in the day of judgment, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So these truths and the ones that we're going to look at in coming weeks, I believe awaken wonder. They awaken worship in our hearts. And so that's where we're going. Next week, we'll dive in to the doctrine of Scripture. So thanks again for coming. Hope to see you next week.